You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee and I'm assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And today I'm joined by Mark and only Mark. Aren't you lucky? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to share me with anyone else. You listeners may be asking, well, we are having a books episode of Quick to Listen. This was actually Mark's brainchild. Yeah, I thought we should do uh, books that we've read that gave us a lot to think about that can help us to quickly listen better to all the world that's going on around us. I know. You could almost like argue that books are the ultimate form of listening because only one person is doing the talking. <laughs> exactly. And you just have to spend hours listening to that person to get through the book. Yep. Exactly. All right. So Mark and I each have three different books that we are going to be sharing with you guys today and kind of discussing and going over some of the questions that we thought through while we were reading the book. We have not shared our list with each other, so it'll be a surprise on both sides. And before we get into our books, as I know you're all excited to hear them, this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. Our current issue, which is the July-August issue, is about how robots are apparently taking our jobs, which is a fairly fascinating topic. And I'm really glad that we have this written because it's trying to kind of stem some of the anxiety that people may feel about this situation happening and anxiety that I completely relate to. I listened to a podcast yesterday that was just talking again about how driverless cars are probably going to be causing some of the most societal upheaval of anything that we've ever had. This guy said it will rival the internet or surpass it in terms of how it will change everything. So when I listened to the podcast, I did feel some anxiety about how that will change our next century. And so just to be able to listen to that interview and then think about what we're trying to get people to wrestle with in this cover story, I think it's super timely. Yeah, my son, he... uh... He was debating a a year or so ago whether he should even buy a new car because Hmm. he figures in 10 years or so, everyone will have be using self-driving cars. Well, he ended up buying a car because he doesn't think it's going to happen as fast as we think, but it's a pretty amazing technology. Yeah. This particular interview that I listened to was just talking about how it's not only like truck driving jobs that will go away or taxi jobs. It's all the service center jobs at these places, at the rest stops, at the gas stations, you know, kind of cars and yeah. So forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that will just have a gigantic transformation. I mean, that's one of the things when I travel is I look forward to stopping, but not only getting gas, you go in, you get a snack, whatever. Yeah. It'll completely change kind of how we relate to each other. So if that article doesn't fill you or that news does not fill you with some sort of panic, don't worry. There are plenty of other articles <laughs> in this issue for you to think through and wrestle with. And there are some that will bring you comfort, too. Yeah. Mark is talking about his own article, obviously. So you can subscribe to CT by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. We also include a download of mine, Mark's, and our other podcast host, Richard's favorite articles that you get in gratitude for subscribing. All right, let's do this show, Mark. So I just want you to talk about, you know, your favorite topic, this book that you have read, apparently. Tell us what it is <laughs> and what's going on with it. Well, probably the most memorable book I've read recently is called White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America by Joan Williams, who's a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Which is Berkeley's Which is law Berkeley, school. Yeah, correct. So she wrote a 
article about this topic in the Harvard Business Review right after the uh, election of Donald Trump to try to explain the working class who apparently voted for him in overwhelming numbers. And then she turned that into a larger book, and and that's the book. Uh, The book is about trying to help the rest of America, especially elite America, which I have to say we probably consider, I mean, by her definition, you and I, Morgan, are in the elite class. Uh, not necessarily elite in making money, but elite in terms of our interests and our culture and, and the our fact background. that you and I are shaping ideas. Yes, right exactly. Uh, but she, her main purpose of the, of the book is to help the Democratic Party reach out to the working class, uh, white working class, more effectively than they have been. So that part of the book wasn't as interesting to me because I'm not a very political person, but her analysis of the white working class as opposed to the elite class was very interesting. So in a chapter called Why Does the Working Class Resent the Poor, she talks about for working class Americans, work and self-discipline are extremely high values. So when when asked what traits they admire... Both black and white working class Americans mention moral traits in contrast to elites. So things like working class whites like people who care, who are clean, who are not disruptive, who are stand-up kind of people. They dislike irresponsible people who live for the moment, etc. And you're reading descriptors that she yeah, found these when are, she was these are These are her descriptors. Now, the professional elite, she acknowledges, believe in hard work as well, but it's different. So to working class members of all races, valuing hard work means having a rigid self-discipline to do a menial job you hate for 40 years and reining yourself in so you don't have an attitude. And some of the differences come out in hard work for elites is associated with self-actualization self-fulfillment and disruption for elites means uh, founding a successful startup but disruption for working class jobs gets you fired wow that's a very fascinating point right there she says free spirits born working class can't count on the second chances available to elites that's why blue collar families are so big on stability and self-discipline and they embrace institutions that support these traits and chief among these is religion so that would be that would be one example of the of the difference between the two another might be elites uh, this was a very interesting one to me that I just I just listened to it and I said that's exactly the way it is certainly for me elites typically have a narrow intimate circle but also have a broad network of acquaintances, sociologists call them. Entrepreneurial networks help professionals get jobs, customers, clients, business partners, and business opportunities around the country or even in other countries. Elite socializing thus cultivates the ability to get along smoothly with a broad range of people and impress them with your sophistication. Now, uh, she says in contrast, things like this, this, this is just a cultural way of doing things. So, for example, elite children are taught from a very young age to shake hands and look strangers firmly in the face, which is what I taught my children, because that's just a very important trait, because their futures rely on the ability to form and maintain entrepreneurial networks. Now, the working class, their socializing is designed to be apart from their working lives, whereas socializing for the elite class often is associated with their work lives. Or at least it's kind of like intermingled. So working class entertaining is designed to denote a space apart from jobs, not an extension of them. The goal is not to impress people you don't know well, but to comfort those you do know well. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So Joan, the author, did a really interesting article with Slate that I read a couple months ago. So I was excited when you brought this up. And I think she she has an interesting thesis that she's trying to peddle to Slate. For those of you who do not read Slate, I would say it's a left of center online only publication. So she's talking to someone who is relatively liberal as she's writing this. And he's kind of just trying to say like, you know, what about the fact that they have all these racist attitudes and and so forth. The point that I want to get in here that I really thought it was interesting is she said, 
I think there's a broken relationship between rich white people, middle class white people, and guess who's paying the price? So her thesis is that because one group feels talked down to and really hurt by the other group, so you have one more affluent group of white people who lower class whites feel is kind of like belittling them or shaming them. There's other, there's larger things that the country is having to go through as a result of that fundamental broken relationship. Does she get into that at all in the book? Uh, a little bit. One of the criticisms of the elite culture of working class is, okay, jobs are changing. The country is changing. Mm-hmm. Why don't you move from your town and go find go to a town in which there are jobs? For the elite class, moving is just part and parcel of what it means to be a successful person. You expect that you'll move and that your children will move many times in their lives in order to gain gainful employment. She said for a lot of working class people, the most important thing in their lives is their family and their friends. And they're very reluctant to leave their communities just for the sake of a job. And when you put it in those terms, you realize maybe their values are something we should rethink about as elites, uh, because that is a very powerful value, that family and friends might come ahead of economic advancement. That is just not something we in the elite class tend to think very seriously about, at least in my experience. So what type of people would you recommend this book to? I'd certainly recommend it to any Anyone who wants to just get a deeper understanding of what's going on in the United States these days, because most people recognize there's huge divides and huge amounts of misunderstanding. And I think if that bothers you and you're wondering about it, and if you're wondering how to maybe take even incremental steps to get beyond it, this is a really good book to help understand one classic divide. Tell everyone what the book is called again. White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America by Joan C. Williams. All right. Obviously, the names of the books will be in the show notes, or maybe not. I'm trying to decide. Do you think they'll listen to the podcast more or less? (laughs) (laughs) No, they'll stop listening in the middle and start reading books, which is a good thing. All right. That's how Mark views the goal of the show. All right. My book, I think, is not dissimilar from your list, and it's Evicted by Matthew Desmond. He is a social sciences professor at Harvard and also a MacArthur Genius Award winner. He basically worked in Milwaukee for almost two years, I believe. And he studied both landlords and tenants, mostly, well, he did dozens of interviews when he was when he was working on this book, but the book itself only focuses on a couple of families and a couple of landlords and kind of just tells their story over a period of time. There's not really a resolution to anyone's stories hmm. that he tells. It's a really, really fascinating book about something that he sees as a very like fundamental crisis for a lot of American families. Beginning the book, he basically dives into the numbers of how cost of living, specifically around renting homes, has skyrocketed, even though wages have stayed far more stagnant during that time. And so rent increasingly eats up more and more of people's incomes and makes it a lot more challenging for people, specifically those who are already economically insecure in general, to be able to stay in their homes. He focuses on communities that live in northern Milwaukee, um, which is mostly African-American families, and families that live in southern Milwaukee, which is mostly whites there who live in a trailer park as well. And then focuses on the landlords, specifically one guy who is the owner of the entire trailer park and another landlady who runs mostly in northern Milwaukee circles and just kind of like gives you both sides, I guess, of all these different conflicts and how they play out and why people struggle so hard to stay in places. One thing that I learned about this book is that you can still deny people housing based on if they have children or not which I did yeah, not know. I didn't know that. That was yeah. possible to do that, but that is something that can still happen. But people end up like losing their homes for all sorts of variety of reasons. One of the most tragic way that people lose their homes um, in this case is at one point, one of the tenants calls 
the police because her neighbor is getting beat up upstairs. And she ends up calling the police multiple times. And her landlady ends up kicking her out, essentially, because she's tired of nuisance reports getting filed about the apartment oh, upstairs. Wow. That's, uh, as you know, I am a landlord myself. So I've read reviews of this book. I haven't read the book yet. Yeah, I, I identify with the uh, this notion that it's, uh, it's a really tough thing to do nowadays is to rent to people. And I rent one set of apartments I live, I rent to people who are just barely making it. And I understand perfectly their difficulties. It's just very common for people to say, one of my renters to say, my car broke down. I can't make my rent at the first of the month. You'll have to wait a couple of weeks because that they don't have any margins whatsoever. Mm-hmm. This particular trailer park landlord, the, the author, Desmond, basically says that this landlord has three options when he's trying to collect rent and someone doesn't have rent. He can either say, okay, you don't have rent and just kind of move on from there and then try and come back in a couple weeks or a couple days. He can say, I'm going to take you to court and have you evicted or he can talk. So a lot of times he opens up conversations, you know, and they try to work out deals about how people can pay rent or, you know, is it possible for this person to contribute somehow to the trailer park to, you know, you be a, be a handyman, so to yeah, speak, yeah. Um, to make up some of that lost rent. And I think the book does a good job of showing the pain and frustration on both sides of the equation and why it's so challenging for everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, I, my experience has been people are are responsible and they do want to meet their obligations. So if you sit down with them and say, okay, can't make it. When do you think you can make it? How much can you make on this date by this date? And that sort of thing. And the amazing thing is that it gives them a specific concrete deadline. And if they hit it, you've got your rent, they've got their self-respect, and they, your relationship between them is just even better mm-hmm. if you're able to work something out like mm-hmm. that. I have found very, I don't know that I found anyone who just said, I don't, I'm not going to pay it or don't seem to care. Everyone seems to care and want to do right. They just are sometimes really... Or they have to compete between multiple places to put that money Exactly, to, yeah. Which often seems, again, with this idea that like rent keeps eating up a larger portion of people's income. They also just talk about the challenges of... There's multiple times where people get their welfare or food stamps cut, and it's because they didn't show up to a meeting with their, you know, whoever in social services. And sometimes they forgot about that meeting, but sometimes they missed it because they were also looking for homes to move into. You know, one woman calls 90 different places looking for another thing. Wow. He also makes the point that a lot of these people are, these people, the tenants, do not use the internet as well. Which, you know, you can imagine is like another expense that people would have if they were going to be adding that into their home. But that also like makes their world a lot smaller of where they're going to move into. Most of the people in the trailer park would never dream of moving to northern Milwaukee where they feel like it's the worst area ever. And most of the African-American families that are in northern Milwaukee would not look in the trailer park either. You know, there's one or two black families that are in there. So again, this book is called Evicted and it's by Matthew Desmond. Yeah. I should, of all people in this room, I should be reading it. All right. You and I will both read each other's books after this. All right. Go. Next book is uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith by Rosaria Butterfield. And she lives with her husband, Kent, in North Carolina with three of four children, where Kent serves as a pastor in a Reformed Presbyterian church. Many of you will have known that name as she appeared in Christianity Today, I don't know, maybe two or three years ago. She was our very first testimony piece. And it it just went crazy in terms of popularity and interest and sharing. She herself says she was, uh, she describes herself as a 
associate professor at Syracuse University back in 1999, uh, head of the Center of Women's Studies. She says she was in a lesbian relationship and head of the gay community there. Her primary field was critical theory, or also known as postmodernism. Her specialty was queer theory. And at the time, she was very hostile to everything Christian, especially to the religious right. And so she decided she was going to write a book on the religious right to help understand why they're so odd and weird. And as she got into it, she just started reading the Bible and finding it somewhat confusing. It is a hard book to follow if you haven't been introduced to it as a child or are part of a community that reads it. And along the way, she wrote an editorial or a column in a paper and described what she was finding and some of the things she was thinking. And of course, she got a lot of hate mail from a lot of conservative Christians. But one pastor wrote her and said, really interesting piece, found it very helpful in a lot of ways. But have you thought about some of the presuppositions you are grounding your article on? And he mentioned, asked her a few questions. And she said, that just startled her because, in fact, she hadn't. And she thought, and he invited her to over for dinner or go out to lunch and talk about it. And she debated that for a week or two and finally agreed to do it. And that established a relationship with him and his wife. And eventually she started going to his church, which is a very uh, conservative church in terms of a lot of its traditions. Uh, They're a church, for example, that just practices psalm singing. They don't believe that the Bible uh, allows for contemporary hymnology of any type. But it was the loving acceptance of that couple, as well as the loving acceptance of that family, that forced her to rethink her own presuppositions, her own life, her own faith. I mean, there's just some wonderful scenes in there when she's coming to church with her she describes her butch haircut and her tattoos, and she comes with her transgender, you know, friend, uh, cross-dressing friend. And apparently they received a well, warm welcome from the church and just said, you know, glad you can join us and entertain them with conversation. And that slowly made a, a difference. I think the, the interesting thing about the piece to me was not just the, te- the transformation from one worldview to another, but uh, along the way, she really is pretty hard on the Christian community, uh, especially the evangelical community where where it is more superficial, happy-clappy, churches about making people feel good before they walk out the door, because she's, she's a very serious and dedicated Christian now, very rigorous in terms of her own thoughts and the way she lives her life. She's a huge advocate of uh, adoption, and she's adopted a number of children into her home, especially children have special emotional needs. She also thinks evangelicals in particular have misrepresented what the gay community is about, what they stand for, what they believe in. She often hears people talk about, Christians talk about the gay community of what they think and believe, and she says, they don't think that, they don't believe that, what are you really talking about? And she's especially hard on uh, Christians because they have uh, abandoned the university to the secular culture. She says we Christians feel embattled and feel like they're being shoved out of the university, and she says, my favorite line of hers is too often the church does not know how to interface with university culture because it becomes it comes to the table only ready to moralize and not dialogue and she talks a lot about uh, the Christian community's habit of moralizing shaking a finger at the culture and saying what you're doing wrong rather than entering into conversation with the culture about Jane, maybe why, that's like why are you doing that yeah why are you doing why do you think that uh, have you thought about this? Is there another way? I, you know, we think about it from a different perspective. She's, is the book that, mostly that, a memoir then? It's mostly a memoir. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I like the balance between it wasn't just I was I was this person, highly secularized, confused sexually. Now I'm a Christian. I've got it all together. And Christians have got it right and that world's got it wrong. So she's a very interesting person in the tension she holds in her own head and why she came to the conclusion that the scripture is the authority in her life and why she became gave her life to Christ. It feels like a very 21st century type of memoir. 
and conversion story. Yeah, it is very much so. It just made me think how we can, especially at Christianity Today, how can we help our readers? And we try to do this already, how to entertain conversations with those who differ from us, who simply don't believe in Christ, who reject him without question. How do we enter into conversations with them first so we can have a conversation and not just a shouting match, not shaking our fingers self-righteously at one another, which is what too often happens. I'd like to figure out how we can do that even better in our pages. I don't know that that's always going to help people convert to Christ, but at least they will walk away saying Christians are people who care about me, who wanted to listen to what I had to say. And that can't help but be a good witness for Christ. Interesting thing to mull over when you're working on a magazine. I don't think it's impossible at all. I just think it's going to take a different form than if you're in person having those conversations. Right. So our job in the magazine would be to show examples of people doing that. So having her testimony in the magazine was one example. We had articles years ago before this thing kind of blew up in the evangelical world in which uh, one of our editors, Doug LeBlanc, who was part of the Episcopal Church at the time, which was wrestling with the issue of homosexuality, he just wrote a story about his friendship with an actively uh, gay person whom with, with whom he disagreed, but he just described how they maintained a relationship. Showing people that are in relationship with other people usually is a good example of that particular challenge and then also help people trying to make it work in spite of those challenges. Right. Cool. Who would you recommend the book to? I guess I'd recommend it to anyone who just wants to read another account of how Christ encountered a person and how Christ is shaping that person. Uh, I don't know that it, ha- it may, may or may not have any particular takeaway take except, wow, praise God, this is amazing. You may or may not agree with her on certain things that she says, but you still have to be impressed with a dramatic change in who she who she perceives herself to be. My next book recommendation is called Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah Vowell. This is a book about 19th century Hawaii that I just finished. I've been listening to a podcast about Hawaii for the past couple of years. And for those of you who do not know, I am one-eighth Hawaiian and my dad grew up there, as did all my grandparents. And I think the generation before that as well, um, even though some of that generation is Chinese. And so this was something that I really wanted to learn more about. I went to Hawaii when I was in fourth grade and we spent a month there. This was like in addition to other like family vacations that we took back there. And during that month that we were there, I learned a decent amount of Hawaiian history because my mom was just teaching us at the time and she tried to expose us to as many things as possible. But it had been a while since I'd really dug into what Hawaiian history had looked like. And so this book was recommended on the podcast and I decided to give it a read. It is a very playful book. It is not a stodgy history book. It is only about 250 pages long and there's lots of rabbit trails that the author goes down. Some of them which are like super interesting as well. But for the people who are not familiar with 19th century Hawaiian history, at the end of the 1700s, the Hawaiian islands for the first time in their history were united all together under the rule of King Kamehameha I. And he did this not surprisingly, in a rather bloodthirsty manner, depending on how you see it. But this was kind of like the pinnacle of Hawaiian unification. And within 20 years was when the first American missionaries showed up. And during that time, they proceeded to kind of bring Christianity to the islands. And they had a very strong effect on the Hawaiian throne, which this idea of this like unified Hawaiian kingdom did not, not actually last a very long time. And by the end of the 19th century, it was actually overthrown by a group of businessmen who were there, um, some of them who were descendants of these original missionaries. So now I'm really interested in reading more about that. But I really, really enjoyed this book, partially because of these rabbit trails that she's go on and also because she's willing to kind of say some really interesting things about what brought the missionaries there and their counterparts, the sailors, who 
interestingly enough, most of the missionaries and the sailors who were coming over on these like whaling expeditions and often tried to specifically hide out in Hawaii so they didn't ever had to go back on a whaling boat again were from Massachusetts or from the New England area. How about that? Wow. <laughs> and then they reunited there. And of course, there was mutual antipathy for each other as the missionaries often tried to like mandate things like church attendance, which is what these sailors were trying to avoid. avoid. Exactly. Yeah, she kind of gets into what their influence like was on the throne. One of their most amazing accomplishments that these missionaries um, did while they were in Hawaii was they created an alphabet and then they proceeded to make large swaths of the island actually literate while they were there. The, the stat that they like threw around a lot was that by the end of the century, 70% of Hawaiians were literate. And for people who know their Protestant history, this was important because you're trying to get people to read the Bible them for themselves. Um, of course, there's all this other like push and pull that goes on with the missionaries of how the missionaries critique culture and how they interact with what's, you know, with this like larger Hawaiian views on sexuality or alcohol or other types of cultural expressions, which is kind of, I feel like, not unlike other missionary stories that you've heard. Um, though it is interesting that these missionaries at some point kind of move into changing the affairs of government and also into these like land ownership type deals. You know, they'd really try to change the form of government that the Hawaiians have from having this like monarchy to having something that moves a little bit more towards elections and why they go about doing that. So anyway, I enjoy the book. One of the most interesting rabbit trails that she goes on is this story of this missions home um, that existed in New England for a while. And the goal of this place was to train indigenous people in ministry and then have them go back to their homeland or to their people and to share the gospel there. So one of the first people that went there was this native-born Hawaiian who actually ended up dying in New England. He got really sickly, which is another theme of the book, which is how many times just sickness comes and it afflicts a large amount of Hawaiians and they end up dying. But after this, you know, Hawaiian goes over there, she tells the story of these two Native American guys, both Cherokee, um, who went through this missions program. And, you know, the missions program looked like it was going to be a great success in terms of just like educating people in the gospel. But these guys made a fatal mistake of falling in love with white women. There was so much uproar in the town that this had happened that they ended up having to close the missions home. Even though these guys ended up being responsible for translating the Bible into Cherokee, for working on Cherokee newspapers, and their relationship with the American government when the American government was trying to move the Cherokee ultimately led them to being killed by their fellow Cherokee who were angry at the way that they had interacted with the government. So that sounds like a rabbit trail since it's not about Hawaii as such. No, it's not. But it was about these like fascinating <laughs> Okay. of this mission school. Okay, yeah, I see. Yeah, so her take on Christian influence in Hawaii is nuanced, some good, some some bad I would in say her it's view. more nuanced than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, there's just a general sense of like cultural loss that happens, and obviously it coincides with the decline of this Hawaiian kingdom, which was pretty short-lived to begin with. But I think she does a good job explaining larger nuances and, you know, making people into real people, and there you go. It's a very difficult thing when, a, when Christians enter a new culture. Correctly. And, and also when people did not ask them to show up. This is also the, yeah. the tension that's yeah. in there, too. Right. Anyway, it, it was a good read overall, though. It's not very hard but to do read. But do we have a choice? Do you have a choice when you're about whether, whether to show up or not? When Jesus tells us to go to the four corners of the earth. I think that's the question is what type of welcome? What type of welcome do you take as God's sign that you're supposed to be there? And what type of welcome? I mean, people have gotten all types of welcomes, right? We have plenty of stories in missionary, in our missionary histor history books of people being killed, right, when they get off there. Right. So what, you know, what does no look like and how does that change how you respond to cultural engagement? You know, and the, the reasons that we used to justify one thing and 
the 21st century are going to look different than the 18th and 19th century. So in the case of uh, Jim Elliott, uh, who is a famous missionary in our, in our area, in our area of the world, Wheaton, he went to he went to the Alka Indians, and he and three of his buddies were killed when they tried to just even engage them in conversation. And eventually his, his wife goes and is able to engage in conversation so that one of the Jim Elliott's murderers becomes a Christian. So that's an interesting story of that tension and how you bridge complete hostility into something that's more receptive. Well, and I think that there's a case, the other thing about this book that is fascinating, right, is that these missionaries don't just come over sharing the gospel. They're responsible for this mission school, which is known as Punahou, which is also where Barack Obama went to high school. And it's oh, kind of right? where, How about that? you know, all, a lot of the elites went, right? And often their children were not missionaries, right? And so their children stayed on the island, which is not always the case in mission schools too, and became some of these business people who you may admit had more mixed you know, motivations for why they wanted to be there and how they saw Hawaii, which is actually kind of an interesting thing because in most missions accounts, you don't read stories of the kids who have the same, who decide to stay in there and kind of seek out their own livelihood. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's an interesting story and I don't think some of these questions have easy answers. So who would you recommend this to? Anyone who likes American history. It's a really interesting snapshot. I think Hawaii people really view quickly as a tourist destination. And this is just something that will like nuance that kind of view for people. Good. What's your last book? Last book is a novel. Uh, it's an older novel from the early 20th century, Death Comes to the Archbishop by Willa Cather. Uh, Willa Cather was an American author who was recognized for a number of her novels uh, based in the Great Plains, including O Pioneers, My Antonia. Uh, in 20- 1923, she won the Pulitzer Prize for One of Ours, uh, a book about uh, World War One. But this particular book is about one of the early arch- archbishops of Santa Fe. And of course, it's a typical Willa Cather in terms of it, the beauty of its writing and the beauty of its descriptions. And her, descri- her descriptions of the sparseness of the diocese of Santa Fe. Santa Fe. So I wanted to read uh, just one short passage that kind of gives a flavor of what her writing is like. This is how the book opens. One afternoon in the autumn of 1851, a solitary horseman, followed by a pack mule, was pushing through an arid stretch of country somewhere in central New Mexico. He had lost his way and was trying to get back to the trail with only his compass and his sense of direction for guides. The difficulty was that the country in which he found himself was so featureless, or rather, that it was crowded with features all exactly alike. As far as he could see on every side, the landscape was heaped up with monotonous red sand hills, not much larger than haycocks, and very much the shape of haycocks. One could not have believed that in the number of square miles a man is able to sweep with the eye, there could be so many uniform red hills. And then he, she, he goes on, she goes on in a couple pages to say the traveler was Jean Marie Latour, who is now the new uh, apostle vicar of New Mexico. And he had ju- just come from Cincinnati, and she describes it like this. No one in Cincinnati could tell him how to get to New Mexico. He gets appointed there, and no one could tell him how to get there. No one had ever been there. Since young Father Latour's arrival in America, a railroad had been built from New York to Cincinnati, but there it ended. New Mexico lay in the middle of a dark continent. And this is in 1851. So it's not that long ago that this stretch of land was essentially unknown to Americans in general. Now, Bishop Latour is a Frenchman. So there's flashbacks to his life in France growing up and to his work in Cincinnati and to his relationships with his uh, the other bishops and the fathers in the area with Mexicans, with Indians. Indians, doesn't seem to have a real arc. Uh, the arc seems to be these were snapshots of what life was like to be a bishop in a very isolated and deserted part of the world at that time. And both his trials, tribulations, and 
and successes. Just one of those books that you just you don't read because it's a page turner. You read it just to get get your head into a different time and a different place and a different person. How did you like the main character? He's very admirable. Which unrealistically, is, <laughs> no, not unrealistically. I mean, he's admirable in the sense that he he under he is devout, and so he's really interested in, in spreading the Catholic faith in this area. He's also very wise. He doesn't he recognizes he's coming in when there were uh, the former vicar apostolic in of New Mexico had left, and so it had had there were some loyalties to him, and he understood when to push his authority and when not to. He also has tremendous compassion for uh, the Catholic faith had been planted there a hundred years earlier. And then many people were living with, had not had a priest in decades, had not had communion, had not had baptized their children. So it shows him going to these villages, long trips, week long trips, and through the middle of the desert, trying to get to these villages so people could get baptized, so they could have their marriages uh, confirmed. Shows, shows, shows him compassion, shows him rescuing a woman who was um, in the home of an abusive man, various incidents like that. But it also shows him to be a lonely man. He, he has a relationship with his uh, assistant, and uh, he, he, he struggles between his duty to send his assistant out to do mission work, but also to have this man with him because he loves his companionship. So it shows him a man who is a human being and yet has this mission to be the bishop of this uncharted territory because you know you know a lot of american novels they're very cynical about the missionary presence and so they'll show they'll try to show the mission they'll try to in a sense take the missionary down a few steps but this is is he's not as he doesn't come across as a saint but he's 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 just a human being who loves god and he especially loves the virgin mary actually He's very devoted to the Virgin. So Protestants will not identify with that, but if they translate that into devotion of Jesus, they can identify with him. <laughs> or you can listen to our podcast where we talk about the Virgin Mary. Yes. <laughs> Make you feel better. Cool. So my last book, I feel like all of our books have paralleled each other. It's kind of odd. Yeah. My book completely <laughs> parallels this. Okay. It is called Euphoria. And it's by the author Lily King. I don't know how many... Are you familiar with Margaret Mead? Yeah, well, I... Vaguely, yes. She's an anthropologist right, uh-huh. from the 20th century. So this is a novel that is loosely based on a trip that she took. Okay. So it is about this woman, Nell, who is a best-selling, hugely successful cultural anthropologist who is in Papua New Guinea with her husband, Fen, and their relationship with this third anthropologist, Bankson. It's really interesting. I read it all in one sitting on the airplane a couple days ago. Aside from just this writing that makes you feel so immersed in Papua New Guinea, which is probably a place where almost all the readers have never been to. And I think that, you know, King does such a really great job getting you into that spot. The types of issues that are dealt with, you know, and asked by the characters or asked implicitly by the author are really fascinating. So this kind of relationship that is between them is, as I said earlier, Nell, who's based off Margaret Mead, is hugely successful. She's just won a bunch of money and is getting all these royalty checks for her very famous book. Um, And her husband was at first really enamored with the amazing work that she had done, but now he's very competitive and kind of bitter about that. And they've just come back from this very, you know, from doing research on this very violent tribe. um, And they're looking for a new place to go where Nell can go someplace where she is feeling like less kind of like openly traumatized. And so they run into this guy named Bankson who 
is dealing with a lot of just like familial expectations that have been, he's wearing the brunt of um, one of his brothers died in World War One, and another of his brothers committed suicide. And so he already feels like he's disappointing the family by becoming an anthropologist rather than a scientist. Um, in any event, he gets, he's just so excited to meet this couple, mostly because he's been so alone, you know, or at least culturally alone as he studies this other tribe. And then he starts to have feelings for Nell um, and she starts to have feelings for them, which is one part of the book. But there's also these other questions that are going on, mostly about these like interactions with natives and these people that they live with and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, what's crossing the line of doing research, you know, how, how close can you be with people? What can you ask of them? There's this one line in there that talks about how her husband doesn't want to study natives. He wants to be one. Oh, wow. and and you know where where do you kind of draw the line as a researcher? Um, so she, you know, King really dives into those questions, um, and also this kind of idea of like commodification of people's experiences, stories, things, cultural artifacts. Her husband Fen is really big about picking up this flute that he really wants to get and take back and really show people, you know, here I was. Especially, you know, you kind of see this in light of his own kind of insecurity about his wife's success. And to what, you know, he goes to end up going to really great lengths to go ahead and retrieve this object. But you could also compare it about the fact that she is this like best-selling author who sold all of these, you know, research that she did about other people's lives and experiences and became rich or relatively rich in the anthropologist world off of that as well. I, I guess like the love triangle is one of the plots in there, but I guess it just goes so much deeper about kind of like being obsessed with people, falling in love with people, falling in love with ideas. This weird vacuum that you get in where there's only kind of three people who kind of come from your cultural background and educational background and how you both lose yourself and find yourself in your work. I know those are like kind of like cliche ways to talk about it, but they're quite cut off, right? In a way that almost no people are going to be cut off today in terms of like what they're seeing and experiencing. And I think that's another interesting thing too, is just them, them trying to understand what is meaningful or not. There's a really great line in there about um, that talks about the fact that like once you have language, you miss a lot of what is actually going on in a room and what's actually being so you know communicated and what's meaningful because you pay attention to words rather than body language or the mood in a room. But that's what they're trying to do the entire time, right? It's like sift out the, you know, what's music, what's meaningful, as opposed to like what's noise. And you can't always do that when you just like step into a culture. Sounds like another one of the tensions is whether, can you actually study a culture without affecting it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like they find that's probably impossible in the end. And what, you know, what is permissible when you're trying to get data? They come, she and her husband come in with all this stuff that they just kind of like bring and set up at their house and that many of the indigenous people want to interact with or see or do things with. And then that's how they kind of like learn to rely on their language, you know, to learn the language and to ask them questions about how everything goes. Right. Which kind of seems manipulative in some ways, but also does foster goodwill up front with these people that they're studying. So anyway, it's not that hard to read, but it's quite immersive and good. I definitely recommend it. Good. Who do you recommend it for particularly? Anyone who really wants to kind of get lost in a world that they're unfamiliar with. Okay. All right. So there's six books for you listeners. You got till the end of summer to read them. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've read any of the books or if you have book recommendations for us, I feel like now you get a sense of the stuff that we like to read. But as always, we're trying to read outside of what we necessarily think we're interested in. So please feel free to share your suggestions with us on social media. You can do that at Twitter slash CT podcast or Facebook at facebook.com slash CT podcasts. That is it for us today. This podcast is produced by Richard Clark. 
and Cray Allred. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as well. The best way to leave us reviews, though, is by going to Apple Podcasts and doing that as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.